Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is the wonderful Meg Mason. She's the author of several books, including the recent Instant Sunday Times bestseller, Sorrow and Bliss, which is one of my favourite books of this year. The minute I finished it, I wanted to reread it all over again. She began her career at the Financial Times and the Times of London. She's been a regular columnist for GQ, Elle and Vogue. And her most recent novel, Sorrow and Bliss, really has taken the world by storm. And don't worry, there's no spoilers in this episode if you haven't read it yet. The only stuff we talk about is the stuff you'll get from the blurb. And just to set the scene for how much people have loved this book, it's one of the Times best books of the summer, one of The Guardian's 50 hottest new books everyone should read, one of The Independent's 30 best books of the summer, one of The Irish Independent's hottest summer reads. It's just everywhere. And there is a quote on the cover from Anne Patchett that says, I was making a list of all the people I wanted to send it to until I realised that I wanted to send it to everyone one I know, which sums up exactly how I feel because I have sent it to quite a few friends now. It's just one of those books that makes, I think, everyone feel more understood and it's moving and funny and really unique. It's just one of its kind. And it's been described as a Gen X coming of age story. It's a mental health love story and it will rip you apart and it will piece you back together again. So it was a real treat to interview Meg and I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you did, please do consider leaving a little review or leave me a little comment somewhere. It always means so much. I have had my head in your book for, well, it didn't take me long to finish it, but it really got me out of my reading funk. I feel like a lot of people said this about Sorrow and Bliss, that they felt like they couldn't really read anything and, you know, life is really hard at the moment. And then suddenly this book comes along and it's like you gobble it up in a day. So thank you so much for this book. Oh my goodness, thank you. That's so kind of you to say. If that's true, then I'm really pleased. It's so true. And I I wanted to ask you about the process of, of writing it because I have read a few interviews with you and when I was reading it I felt like oh my god this is an author having so much fun I was like this is just such a fun energetic playful book even though of course it's sad and dark in places but were you having fun writing it I know that you had to get to that place it's actually lovely to start at the end of it in that way because I was I was having it was genuinely the best writing experience of my life and when it finished I was so sad like I was sort of felt quite triumphant because this thing that had had the wobbliest possible start was, you know, was done and it was going to be published and all that sort of thing. But, but I also missed it for myself because it had been this amazing, really intense few months of, of feeling about my work in a way I hadn't before. And not just the product of it, but the actual work itself, like I wanted to be at my desk. And I mean, you know, and every author knows that sometimes it's a struggle. You have to do so much self-talk to even get yourself to the point of sitting down. And and there was sort of just none of that. And I was telling someone the other day, actually, that um, I have this little writing shed in the garden where I work. It's really, really tiny. Whenever I say it's tiny, people still overestimate how big but I'm like it's literally you can touch all four walls at the same time it's like proper prison cell territory anyway I'm very lucky to have it but um I was coming out here one morning at five o'clock because I was still a full-time journalist at the time so I was coming out five o'clock in the morning um and I was carrying a bowl of porridge and two mugs of tea and it was dark and freezing and I tripped on a stone step in the garden and kind of 
you know, ripped my jeans, chunky grazes in my knees, bit of broken bowl in my hand. And I just kept walking and just went and sat down at my desk. And the first thing that popped into my head was, do you know that Ernest Hemingway quote about all the writer has to do is sit down at the typewriter and bleed? And I was like, I was already bleeding before I got here. Like I was bleeding before I even sat down. And that's sort of, it's like this funny metaphor for how I felt. Like I had such drive. And I mean, now I can't, imagine or remember feeling that way like it it just feels like this experience that was completely into itself and I think if if that yeah if that translates a little bit and it felt like that and there was some of that energy in it then then that's a wonderful byproduct I think but but I remember feeling before it came out that no matter what happened to it or how it went or you know how it sort of reached a market or not I could never turn around and say that it had failed because for me it had sort of been a success long before that, you know, just for myself as a writer, because as you have probably read, <laughs> I did write a whole other book first and have to let that one sadly um, be graveyarded before it came out. And that was sort of the absolute opposite experience where I was completely devastated at the end and, mm-hmm. you know, questioning everything. And then Sarah Bliss was sort of, I guess, a little bit Phoenix from the horrible, horrible ashes of that. And what an amazing feeling then that it's had this response, because I was going to ask you actually on that kind of note of ditching the first novel that wasn't working and then actually finding real like joy and energy again in yourself writing this one. Were you nervous when you sent it to the publishers? I actually didn't for a really long time, because the last thing my publisher had heard was that I was quitting. When I sent it to her, it was like, this is just to show you what I've been doing. I know you can't publish it because it is so different and it's completely different from what I'd produced before, either in publication or or not. And she was sort of, she took quite a while to respond. And as soon as I'd sent it, I instantly regretted it because the, the trick of it had always been that privacy, like the belief that no one would see it, which wasn't just something I convinced myself of. Like it was actually genuinely true at that point as far as I was concerned and then so obviously as soon as I sent it to her that just sort of was out of my hands and and I asked for it back and I asked her not to read it and then by the time I did say that she had read it but sort of very graciously confessed that when she first saw it she's just like what is this and what has she done and kind of I think (laughs) we we do contest the facts of this story but she was like I'm just going to give it a couple of days because I don't want to have that conversation and then by the time she'd done that and decided to have one more look she was like oh this is just a completely different thing Mm -hmm. and when she read it but yeah I was convinced it wouldn't see the light of day because it just felt too specific to what I liked rather than thinking about anybody else. It's so generous of you to share the process because I think it's such an important part of creativity that, you know, I when I was younger, I literally thought books like grew from a tree. Like I just didn't, I did not understand <laughs> how they were made. And I was talking to someone the other day, actually, because I had to scrap an awful draft in, in the lockdown because I was just so miserable. And I like mm. to write, hopefully, a bit of fun in the books. And there was no fun. Mm. And um, a friend of mine who's a writer was like, only one. She was like, I've scrapped three drafts. I was like, oh, I'm only just realising that this is normal. Exactly, exactly. And I was completely the same. And I honestly thought I was the only writer who'd ever done it, which now seems ludicrous. Um, But I chatted to Claire Chambers of the amazing Small Pleasures. And she had done the same thing, but it it's something she'd worked on for five years. And I was like, oh my goodness, everybody must do this. But for some reason I'd never kind of connected to that or heard it enough to actually absorb it. You know, so I felt like the most colossal failure. And I think it was partly, I think it was for me, it was also because the stakes felt so high, you know, I'd already sold it. 
and you know it was due to be published and I'd done it before so there was no reason necessarily to think I couldn't do it again but also just the fact that I mean really aside from the fact I just wanted it so badly it was just I don't know I just felt like such a desperate failure as I as it went along and then of course you panic and as you say whatever mood you're kind of in in the big scheme of things it does translate onto the page and you could see my sort of misery and my confidence ebbing away so it was it was it was really awful so I think it's good if everybody's like no no we've done it we've done it this this is how many manuscripts we scrapped to get here and I was reading yeah. about um that scene the canopy scene that it came to you when you're hanging up your washing is that right Did, uh, does that always yes. happen with your books like does it come to you like that it's sort of it did with that one but I think why that is memorable in the way it came is because I wasn't working on anything you know I had I'd been a few weeks by then not working and you know the washing line is really close to the shed which had literally a padlock on the door which because I was just never going to go back in there again practically I was going to convert it to like a garden shed but um yeah so I just specifically remember that it came kind of out of nowhere and once you actually do start writing, that kind of thing happens all the time and you're sort of always working on it. And some of the best, you know, the best sort of thinking you do is when you're doing something completely different, far away from your desk. But I think that was just really surprising because it was what made me take the padlock off and come in and be like, I might just put that little thing down because that's quite funny to me. I love it. And for the writers who listen to this podcast, uh, another thing I really loved, I heard that you said that you'd banned the use of a thesaurus for this one. It was almost like you put all of that novelisty things away. Yeah, exactly. And that was that was absolutely in response to how desperately dependent I'd become on the thesaurus the thesaurus it's quite hard to say the previous year um so that even to this day if I open that website I have this sort of lurch of like PTSD that even the colors do you know what I mean I'm just like oh that was a bad time but it was just it came from the fact that you know I suppose it was just deciding that I could trust myself to do the job and or, or just I could trust myself to write down this thing I wanted to write down without trying to be fancy. And of course, you know, when you make that decision, it has m- m- outsized payoff because it means a lot more than the fact that you're not looking at words. It means that you've decided to just follow your instinct and to do what you know and to do what you're capable of and that that's enough, you know, that, that you've decided that's enough. You don't need to strive for this other thing. And I think, I mean, I've never thought of what I do as literary fiction. It's definitely what I sort of pretentiously want it to be. But because a book is funny, I always think, oh, it can't be literary. But actually, you know, that isn't the case. But I think sometimes it means that we undervalue what's funny or we undervalue how difficult that can be sort of to achieve and what a high wire act it is. And, you know, I know that even when I was writing humor for magazines, it always felt so much more desperate and awful if a typo snuck into a section where you're trying to be funny because instantly it all falls apart and it's like, oh my gosh, this horrible fourth wall breaking awfulness because you do feel much more, I feel like I'm doing something more risky in trying to make people laugh than trying to make them cry. Like trying to make Mm -hmm. someone cry is not actually that difficult. You just kill a dog fundamentally. Do you know what I mean? Whereas trying to make someone laugh is actually... I find it really quite, you know, you have to focus up a little bit. I had some very strange emotions reading Sorrow and Bliss, though, because I was laughing, but I was kind of, I was almost laughing, crying, or like like laughing, wincing, like I'm feeling a lot of very nuanced feelings. 
I really love what you say, though, about trusting yourself, because I, th- I really hope that more people with their creativity try to trust themselves more. I love this idea of you being like, do you know what? It's going to happen. It might not be now. It might be in a few years. Who knows? But like, I don't know if being a journalist helps that. You just know that eventually this thing will be made if you put enough enough time in the seat kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's such a funny thing because I can't decide on that because that's how I would that's what I always would have said but that's that kind of like Protestant work ethic was slightly what got me into a pickle the first time because I did just think if I sit here and I do not let myself stand up you know that's what had always worked in the past but because it was getting further and further away from me all I had was was forcing myself and so that kind of as I said like translates into the thing so I don't know, and I'm I'm facing it again right now as I try and sort of write the next one, which is you know challenging in in other ways and for other reasons. And I'm like, I need to sit here, but I don't want to sit here too much. You know what I mean? Like it's this balance because I think it isn't guaranteed, and you have to want it, and you have to want it more for yourself than anyone else does because that is what I sort of have learned is that it is totally up to you, and it's the one thing that no one can really help you with. You know, mm. you can't be like, could you just write chapter nine for me? And then we'll kind of meet back here. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it is wholly, it will not exist unless you bring it into existence and no one's waiting for it, kind of metaphorically speaking, even if you're, you know, if you have a publisher or something. So it's really tricky because you need this intense devotion, but then you also need to be really kind to yourself because it's a really embarrassing, vulnerable making thing it's a really lofty aspiration and I always feel and still now even with Rumblers Out I feel like it's a really embarrassing thing to attempt in a way because it's like why do I think I can do that you know why do I think it's all right for me to try and it's such a funny I don't know if people with normal jobs feel like that with actual jobs feel like that about their work do you have to be entitled to I don't know it is a strange job. It is a very vulnerable job. But I I love that idea, though, of like the putting the washing on the line and the going for the walk and the stroking the dog and like all those mundane things actually could be the sprinkling of magic. It's like the combination of their work ethic and the those just moments where you're floating around. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's the thing. And actually, that's right. That's what it is. It's putting in the share time so that those moments do come when you're hanging out the washing. Do you know what I mean? I think that's right. You've got to sort of almost be in the posture of work and to be, to have made that commitment and shown that to yourself by being there. But then once that's there and that's done, then the sort of the bit that's a bit indefinable and you don't know how it works, but it just does work. But that's the part you'll never get to if you didn't sit down in the first place. Finally yes. struck on it. That's my answer. Thank you for <laughs> midwifing that interview. <laughs> well, thank you for letting me grill you about the process. I, I would love to talk <laughs> about Martha now, who is not you. And I I mean, obviously, I, I loved her deeply. I didn't like her at times, but then, uh, you know, it's like a best friend. Like you, you cannot like them sometimes, but you dearly love them. I, f- I found her so unique. And I've got to say, I was listening to you doing an interview in a bookshop somewhere and the the interviewer kept trying to forge parallels between like Fleabag and (laughs) Sally Rooney and things. I loved what you were saying about how like that's nice but you know Martha isn't a millennial. We meet her when she's in her 40s. Was that weird for you those parallels? I think it was funny when I mean obviously I mean it goes without saying that that's a high compliment because both of those writers have done something that didn't exist before they did it do you know what I mean like they invented their own genre and that's just the most incredible achievement and obviously when people 
say that or you know your author says it is partly just to locate you within a sort of you know, to say if you like this you might like yes. that but I think yeah for me it is just intrinsically a Gen X book and I'm intrinsically a Gen X person you know I'm 43 and when as much as I love and adore Fleabag and you know normal people and I can't relate to it and I don't I wasn't there do you know what I mean I didn't I haven't had all those experiences and I much more see um sorry this is a story of the long relationship that you did choose and you did commit to and you did sort of relentlessly sort of work out which millennials you know haven't had time yet you know and I think one of the nicest nicest compliments completely undue but I will take it was from someone who said that the book had a degree of wisdom in it and it would have taken wisdom to write it. And I don't think of myself as a hugely wise person, but by the time you get to 43, you have just seen things and learned things. And you sort of, you know, I suppose everything I have learned is in there and it's not, yeah, as you say, she isn't me, but she definitely has learned some of the same lessons that I've had to learn as a person, mm. as a Gen X person. Yeah, I'm, my older sister's a Gen X and I'm quite obsessed with her. that generation just as a whole. Like not everyone's like an ex-party person kind of grown up now, but it's like that sort of being wise, but also being a bit of a mess and being okay with it. Exactly. We're like, we're like the crossover. <laughs> yeah. We're like... We're like the um, bridging generation, definitely. <laughs> totally. And I just wanted to read a little passage, I hope you don't mind, um, of oh, you yes, talking about please. Martha because she's child free and she's obviously grappling with whether she wants kids or not and she's kind of defensive about it. But also, I think as a reader, you're trying to work out if she's being true or not around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just a tiny bit in Martha's voice, obviously. In the beginning, I told strangers I couldn't have children because I thought it would stop them from continuing beyond their initial inquiry. It is better to say you don't want them. Then they know straight away that there is something wrong with you, just not in a medical sense. So the husband can say, oh, well, good for you, focusing on your career, even if to that point there had been so little evidence of a career being focused on. The wife doesn't say anything. She is already looking around. You just sum up that feeling so well. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's really so kind of you and so meaningful because that's the part that's the most foreign to me because I had the opposite experience where I had my children really, really young. And um, I mean, you know, young by my my own demographic, if you know what I mean. And I, so I was 25. And when you're that age, people are equally as free um, with their opinion as to the fact that you're too young and that you haven't thought it through, even when, you know, this sort of mistake they're claiming that you made is in the pram next to you. Do you know what I mean? And like, people will say, I imagine to older women, oh, you don't want to leave it too late. You know, it's, you'll change your mind if you think you don't. And all of those things, which is so awful and so invasive. And so that hasn't happened to me, but I have definitely been able to, I guess, repurpose that sense of completely inappropriate inquiry and and just the opinions that strangers have on this most intimate thing that you've done and I think I mean it's absolutely enraging and it's shocking that we're even still contending with it um and and yeah it does seem to be something that no matter where you are on that spectrum people have an opinion about it like that they will casually offload to you at parties even if they've never met you before it's just extraordinary Anne Patchett has a collection of essays coming out in November and there's this piece in there about her decision to be 
child free and she never wanted children, but obviously went through the whole, you'll change your mind and all of that sort of stuff. But she was saying that one day she realized that it is just people making conversation. And yet when you're the object of it, it feels so judgmental and so, you know, desperately personal. And so it's something that I've even seen in myself that I'm like, when do I do that? And when do I kind of fall into that thing of asking someone a question? You know, I mean, that's why it was so painful to me because when people flippantly said, oh, you've had them far too early, I absorbed it as absolute narrative. And I think that that's something that is in the book is Martha sort of realizing late that she's taken on other people's version of events and that she's believed what she was told. And maybe it's not till you get older that you sort of start to think, hang on, is that actually true? And, you know, have I just held to this story that's been handed to me by someone else or, you know, and we all have the family stories that we live by and, you know, the family roles and all that sort of things. I think there's definitely something about being 40 that makes you be like, wait, hang on, I might know better. Yes, about myself and my own body. <laughs> yes, exactly. Totally. I mean, it's crazy when you say that about the two young things. It's like you cannot win. You know, everyone <laughs> is like banging on about it being too late. And then you can be too young. Wow. Wow. Um, but I did want to talk about Martha's illness and how it's redacted in the book, what it exactly is. And I know you've spoken about this loads, but my kind of interpretation when I was reading it was just like, wow, this is so cool that this is a fiction you know why do we have to pin everything down we can have things that are just not quite explained and I would have had a different experience to someone else reading it because you you do kind of fill the blank with your own thoughts and imagination and did you write it and then want to do that or was that a decision from the beginning yes it's so funny because well it's so kind of you because I know there are readers that equally do not think it's cool and are really annoyed and would like their money back I find that so Um, strange because it's not a (laughs) memoir (laughs) and it's also not a mystery to be solved and I think I mean the obvious reason is because it's Martha's story and she's the one telling it and if we learn from the blurb what it is then we've got it over her the entire time and we're not going to have the sympathy that we need and to see her on this journey if we already know the place that she's ending up at and I was already, you know, telling a love story where, you know, from the blurb that they get together, they get married and then they are separated. So there's no suspense in that, but I still have to make, you know, to drive a love story forward in a way that feels suspenseful. But I mean, that was just a completely secondary concern to the fact that mental illness kind of came into the narrative on its own. Like it was never there at the beginning of the writing. It was just a plain love story. Um, And so when it became the reason that their marriage was where it was when we meet them, Martha and her husband, Patrick, I could write, you know, I was still in that place of not thinking it was being published. So I could write really freely. And because I had no concern for what people might think or how badly I might be representing a real experience or how, you know, inappropriate it might be to deal with it the way I was, which is sort of, you know, quite darkly, but then, you know, interposed with jokes. And, you know, that's something that if you said, can you, can you write a really honest book about mental illness and make it funny? I don't think I would take that on, you know, mm-hmm. gladly with two hands. I think I would feel like that couldn't be done or it wouldn't be appropriate to sort of even try. So I think then as soon as it was going to be published, all of those concerns sort of reared up at once. Um, and I sort of suddenly actually also remember where I was when this occurred to me, I was walking past a greengrocer and I was like, I'll just take it out. And obviously I'd begun with a condition in mind, Um, But it was so bent and twisted by the time that happened in terms of me adding and taking away from it and changing it that it wasn't that anymore anyway. And so 
it was never a mystery to be solved. And it felt to me like it sorted out all of those problems. And it also meant ultimately that Martha got to be a whole person, not just a walking illness, which is what she absolutely would have been. Like no matter what people say, she would have been categorized completely as, you know, person with schizophrenia, person with bipolar, whatever it was. Mm. Um, that's all. She would have just been that. It would have been the schizophrenia book or the bipolar book or the, you know, narcissistic personality book. And that would have been the end of it. Um, and I just didn't want that for her. And I also didn't want it for, you know, for me as an author, because I'm not qualified to speak truly and properly and authoritatively on mental illness. And I didn't want it for people who suffer from those real conditions to see it badly portrayed or wrongly portrayed. I don't know. It just felt so risky. And so then to take it out felt like the perfect thing to do. And I'm so glad I did it. And it does mean, as you say, that people have been able to put whatever they want in that gap. And, you know, was it the thing your mother had or was it the thing your best friend had or you had it? And it just Mm -hmm. sort of means that we're looking at it, I guess, thematically rather than does it match? Like has, has the author caught it and captured all the symptoms and put them all in, you know, and balanced it all. Cause it's, it was never really meant to be that. Absolutely. And I don't know if this is a really strange parallel that might be a bit random, but when I was reading it, it reminded me of people that I know that are very close to me who for so long have had problems and then, and have been like misdiagnosed and, and gone to lots of different doctors and then realized that they were going through the menopause. Now that's a really good parallel actually, because it's one of those things that we all sort of vaguely know what it is and what it looks like, but it's not till it becomes personal. But I think it's funny because no one ever, well, I don't think most authors would set out to write an issues-based book. And I'm certainly not the kind of author who wants to, you know, advance the conversation or something like that. But it's interesting that it has sort of landed at a moment where I suddenly feel like maybe there is a lot of talk about medical misogyny and the way women have always been diminished and written off by the medical establishment. And I think that is something that I did actively want to show as Martha kind of, you know, from that first doctor who tells her just to have an iron tablet because she wants to feel special as all teenage girls do and a tablet makes you feel special. you know, all the way through, she's kind of um, minimized and patronized and all those things. And, you know, for all the brilliant doctors that there are and the wonderful caring ones, I think most of us as women will have been to one who just makes you feel like an idiot mm. for something that Absolutely. you dare say if it was a man coming in with the same symptoms, it'd be taken really seriously. Yeah. And this whole conversation for me as well, reading a lot of what you were saying about even being worried about putting your name on it at times, like that made me kind of sad in a way because I was like, are we forgetting what the role of a novelist is? Yeah, and I think it's really hard. I mean, part of it was definitely, yeah, there was some cowardice in there because I'm not a social media person and there was a sense that, you know, self-protection in it, that I didn't want to be confused for an expert or or for people to think that I'd, you know, that I'd put myself in this lofty position to be like, I'm going to now speak to the issues, you know. It, it, my only thing is that I can show you what, what I see and what I know and what I've observed like that to me is the job of the novelist and then the the only letter that I've had from someone that I was just like that's funny is um a gentleman who (laughs) said that instead of writing about mental illness I should you know address the solutions and I was like I just don't think we want someone whose honors thesis was on Evelyn Waugh to be handing out (laughs) prescriptions for cures like as in you know even socially I just am like I think we should probably leave that to actual medical doctors and I'll just you know 
tell you what it feels like from the inside as best I can, you know? So yeah, I, I, there was definitely a mixture of protection for others and protection for myself and not wanting to have my name on it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you put your name on it and I'm just so excited for, um, you know, just just in general, like I know that some of your books before are, are they coming to the UK? They're being published next year. They're almost yes, yeah. yeah. So there's a novel that will come out called You Be Mother, which is my first novel. I wrote it in 2017, but I've decided just to like let the memoir that I wrote about being a young mother just to stay very much in its time and to not be brought into present times because it's just not right for now. And it isn't, you know, I sort of look at it very much like it would be publishing my diary from when I was 13. Do you know, it hasn't aged with me. And I just think that one's best left in the past. So um, I implore everyone to please not read it. That sounds terrible. (laughs) No, but but I'm really glad that you're honest about the that weird relationship with your past work because everyone has it and I remember reading this quote years ago of like if you haven't if you're not slightly feeling that way about your past work then you haven't grown as a person so therefore it's a really good positive thing that's such a good way to look at it like I've never thought about it like that and that's actually really because I hadn't read it like I knew that I didn't like it I knew that it upset people that I knew and loved and I just was I was so unwise and I just was so clueless about how different it would be from writing for magazines, which is so temporal and it goes away. And, you know, I, I was writing about something that I wasn't over personally. I wasn't resolved in it. And I hadn't, I was still sort of grieving for this experience that I'd had and I was angry and it was just, it was just, it shouldn't have been allowed to be printed. You know what I mean? But clearly back at, back in 2010 that was perfectly fine and that was you know so it wasn't that I'd pushed to have this thing printed that you know published that shouldn't have been but I hadn't read it since then since it first came out until sort of a couple of months ago when it was you know was to be published in the UK and I was so devastated and upset and just shocked and just I just didn't recognize who this person was like I didn't ever remember being so angry and just like so vicious and I'm like I must have just mellowed or I'm over it or we've all learned and we've all kind of come to recognize things you know in ourselves and socially that just were okay then and they're not okay now and you know it was just really shocking and I was so upset that I was like crying and saying to my husband that it's like I've had a sort of horrible aggressive tattoo on my face and didn't realize and I've just been wandering around being really nice and lovely to everybody with this like nasty horrible tattoo that everyone's like but look at your tattoo though and he was like yeah but most people don't write it down you know, and have it exist in perpetuity. Like we were all awful 10 years ago, but most people don't commit it to stone cold print that will outlive them. And I was like, that is true. Like nobody wants to be brought up against who they really were that long ago. You know, I always used to, before I did this, I would always think it sounded funny when authors say, oh, I haven't read it for ages or I don't remember it. So how could you not remember something that you wrote yourself? But it's really true. It fades the way your experiences for that time fade and you just remember it in sort of much broader brush strokes. And oh, I had that job then and I used to wear approximately this. And But it definitely goes away and thank goodness, thank yeah. goodness we get to evolve. So I just, I think it's also made me, as a reader, when I'm reading something, because, you know, when you come to it, it's brand new. It's just happened. Like it's happening right now as you read it. But always to remember that maybe the author doesn't, this isn't them anymore. And, and yes. to be sort of, I guess, more generous and just to think the best of people. Like that's kind of what the whole story of Sorrow and Bliss was and the relationship between Martha and her sister is, you know, and Martha and Patrick is because 
can they think the best of each other? And when no one else believes Martha, Ingrid believes her. And, you know, it's sort of all of that. And it's just, it's been such an interesting thing for me to just be like, I just want to give people the benefit of the doubt more. And I want to believe that people are fundamentally good and trying. Mm -hmm. And so we can say that people are unlikable and protagonists unlikable, but it's just so easy and fast to say that and to not think a bit more about what might be behind our decisions I'm getting quite philosophical but I really feel quite passionate about it but it's so true and actually if that is the overarching message of Tora and Bliss it totally is that we just need to be kinder to each other and give people room to be because I think I mean there's a I think it's one in four of people will struggle with quite severe mental health problems and you know I'm in lots of whatsapp groups with three other friends you know you just think well, one of us is going to suffer, if not more. Therefore, yeah. this is like actually entrenched in our everyday lives and, and we need to be better yeah. at dealing with it and being good friends. Exactly. And the two of you who don't suffer will be the ones who are looking after the person exactly. who therefore suffer in a just as, you know, acute way. But I think that's been really surprising and it's kind of been really shocking and actually made me really sad to realise since this has come out and to see how people perceive Martha differently than I do because I look at her and yes she's privileged and you know yes she has access to medical care but it doesn't work for her she's still ill for the best part of her adult life and she's really ill and yet I sort of see her spoken about and again it sounds sort of fruity when you talk about her like she's a real person but insofar as she's emblematic you see her spoken about as though, yeah, but she could still pull herself together deep down. Mm. Do you know what I mean? In a way that we would never say, yes, this person has cancer, but if they just tried harder and they didn't make such bad decisions and they weren't horrible to everybody because they can't come out because they're no fun, they've got no energy. You know, it's just, it's still not on par. You know, it's still not deeply, deeply level in us that we really do see them on, you know, physical illness is one thing and mental illness, I still think, We've got a long way to go. But then to me, I'm like, well, maybe they're not the same. Maybe we do need to treat them completely differently and to just say, oh, it's like a broken leg. Maybe it's nothing like a broken leg. You know, like Mm -hmm. I'm sort of trying to evolve myself in my understanding because it's brought me to that point of like, oh, wow, people don't, like when they say she's unlikable and she makes bad decisions, I'm like, but did you read the part about the mental illness? Like, did you see where I said she was really sick? (laughs) So it's, it's funny. It's been a really interesting learning for me. Totally. And that's why I genuinely loved her as a character, because it's like you're struggling and we're watching you struggle. So therefore, how can you not think like, oh, God, you know, this is so not your fault. Yeah. And it's not to diminish at all how much as a carer you must want to be like, just come out, just have a shower, just get in the car, just don't ruin Christmas again. You know, like I don't for a second doubt that those are legitimate and earned feelings and the only thing on the other side is who wouldn't want to be able to get up and have a shower and not ruin Christmas? You know, why would someone like Martha choose to behave that way if she wasn't compelled to by her illness? Like nobody would choose that. And I think the important thing, you know, that I would most want people to read, you know, underneath the text and underneath what Martha's saying is look how sorry she is. Like, look how she never ever tells you sort of, you know, confesses to one of these things that she's done or the way she's treated someone and what she said she's never proud of it like she's actively 
this is kind of like a confessional. The whole book is her saying, I wish I could have done it differently. You know, I did this and I didn't know who I was and I'm just sorry. And even I know that even from a technical perspective, because when you, you know, when you get to the end of the manuscript and your editor's like, let's just do a quick find on words that you might have overused and then like there's 47 actually so can we take that down by 50 percent and so we did that and I'd said actually too many times and I'd said although too many times and then I'm like I'm just gonna see how many times the word sorry appears in this 350 page book 247 times and I'm like okay so clearly she's really sorry so I took some of them out but I'm like that to me is proof that this is not her proudly saying and then I was awful to my husband but also she's always telling you the worst version of her her actions and the best version of everybody else's and Mm. you know it's that thing of everybody sort of well a lot of people will say oh Ingrid's brilliant Ingrid's sort of this foil and she's you know she's really funny and whatever but they began as the same person as far as I was concerned it's just that Ingrid is the version who didn't get sick and so she gets all the things that Martha doesn't get and also but if you really pull it back she's just as awful to her husband she's not speaking to her mother she's pretty shonky at mothering sometimes she's not aware of her own privilege and having Mm. children you know all of those sorts of things so she's it's just that she is presented by Martha in a way that Martha doesn't give herself the same amount of grace I think Totally. It's almost like the privilege we don't talk about, which is the privilege of not having to deal with a brain that is turning on you all the time. And on that note, then, of like the weird thing of being an author and everyone like telling you what they think about the character when when it's like, oh, God, you've heard so many different versions of Martha now from other people. But what's it going to be like then when she's turned into when she's on screen? Because this is going to be a film, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Yes, I know. I know. I have no idea. It is so far beyond my imagining because you know like television and film is so collaborative and so sort of team-based and I am just a lone person in a shed like I only work by myself and I'm only you know come out when I absolutely have to and so I can't imagine what it will be like once it's been through that incredible process which I sort of don't want to be involved in because I sort of feel like I won't be useful I'll just be too much like you know, I'm just too close to it, but I'm just sort of really excited because the studio is amazing and I know they really, really understand it. And, and so I think it'll just be really interesting, I think. And it will be, you know, by then such remove because the book already feels sort of historical to me, you know, because my relationship with it was really two years ago that it was at its most intense. And so by then I think hopefully I'll just be able to watch it as a person. Do you know what I mean? But I think it will be more than like Martha the character, it will be maybe the really specific things. Like if they mention the paint shade of Umbrian Sunrise, I'll be like, oh, that was me. This must be my book. You know, but like, I think seeing an actress play Martha, it won't feel like it's mine anymore, but the Umbrian Sunrise might stay mine. Oh my God. I bet there'll be loads of things that you're like, <laughs> oh yes, that came from me in the shed. I remember. <laughs> oh, watching my- oh, so amazing. And um, I'm only asking you this because I've read that you are working on another novel because I feel like the worst thing that people people do is like what's next when someone's like I don't know stop asking me but um you are working on another novel now are you trying to recreate that magic of no one's going to see this I think I just realized yesterday that it can't be recreated it was a bit of a rough week last week and I was like the only thing I can hope is that I'll find the enthusiasm for whatever I'm doing that I had before even if it looks and feels completely different but I think I just, I know that I won't write Sarambulous again. I don't even want to try. It needs to be so different. And I need to be fine with the fact that it could just be something that clears the pipes a little bit. And that it's not going to be this 
the same and I just I just need to kind of take yeah it is actually taking the pressure off myself because now I'm like shivers I don't have the the same reassurance before that no one will see it and it is a bit harder um but also I'm incredibly fortunate that now I get to do this during the day I've just never done it when it's light outside before so Mm -hmm. I just it's um it's a bit of a change in mindset I will get there yeah but it's I still feel really stupid and embarrassed for trying. Oh, no. It's just so funny, though, isn't it, that it's like whenever I speak to amazing authors whose book I love, I'm like, oh, right, everyone's the same. They always go back to the beginning and, like, go through the same can I do this moment. It's hard to believe because it's like, look, look at what you've done. Exactly. And it sort of has to be different every time because I think I did read that once and it was such a revelation to me that, you know, a doctor doesn't, a surgeon doesn't go in to do an appendectomy and be like, oh, I can't do it the way I did it last time. I've got to do it differently. She was, maybe I can't do it again. I just don't know if I've got it in me. And it's like, we are reinventing it every single time we sit down and the imperative is to do it differently and to do something that ends up different. And so you don't know if you can, you can fall back on a certain level of sort of technical understanding, but but you have to bring something different to it every time. And it's kind of intimidating. And the other day I actually saw it in proximity to Olive on a shelf and they did look really pretty next to each other. So if anybody only owns one, I heartily suggest they pick up its companion volume and put them side by side because they do look quite pretty together. Thank you so much. I'm really struggling with my writing at the moment. So I'm just reading, reading, reading. And it's a reminder of why we do this. So thank you. Exactly. So I just wish I'd been as wise as you at your age. I would have cut out a lot of suffering in the middle. But thank you so much for having me. It was just lovely.